Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. Today's speaker is Stephen Brannan. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, God is one. Amen. Christ is risen. This um, homily is now taking on a new character in light of the news just disclosed to us that um, Father Michael, our um, spiritual father and priest in charge and good friend, um, has just reposed in the Lord and... um, But that, what that means now is that all of the words that I had written for this homily um, are not any less true because of it, but are that much more poignant for me and for our church family. Because what you're about to hear is an Easter sermon, um, ultimately. You might already kind of know where I'm going with, with that. But I'll attempt to make it very clear by the end. Because Easter has to do with Jesus, and this feast day is about Mary, right? As with all celebrations of saints, of course, it's Jesus who ultimately and finally shines through those saints receiving the highest and ultimate praise. When we depict the saints in our iconography, they have a halo around their head. That halo is the light of Christ shining out from them. They have surrendered their old life, the mere life of bios, the Greek word where we get biological life from, in exchange for zoe, the divine life that is God himself, united to human nature now in Jesus Christ and shared with all of his brothers and sisters, if they will receive it. And those who shine through with that light most brilliantly who have evidenced to the church that their lives are full of the Christ life, we call saints. And so a feast day for a saint is never really just about the saint. It's always about Christ, who that saint conforms to. But there are some Christians who think that the kingdom of heaven is almost like a zero-sum game, where any praise that a saint gets is praise that God isn't getting. But that's not how the kingdom of heaven works at all. Christ glories in his saints, and his saints glory in him. And Christ's glory is not diminished when we celebrate those who belong to him. Just the opposite, his glory increases. So let's look to Mary today and see how she increases her son's glory. The occasion that we're exalting in today isn't found in Scripture. It isn't even found in the earliest church writings. It's a story whose only first recorded with any authority in a letter preserved by St. John of Damascus, which was written in the 5th century, so the 400s, by the Patriarch of Jerusalem at the time, Juvenalius, to the Empress St. Pulcheria. She had apparently asked for the relics of the Blessed Virgin Mary to be brought to Constantinople, and the Patriarch informed her in this letter that there were no relics of the Blessed Virgin Mary, but that according to ancient tradition, the body of the Mother of God had been taken up into heaven after her repose, after her death. And he expressed surprise that the empress didn't know this. Quoting apologist and author Dr. Robert Stackpole, 
Juvenalius joined to this letter an account of how the apostles had been assembled in miraculous fashion for the burial of the mother of God, and how after the arrival of the apostle St. Thomas, her tomb had been opened, uh, her body was not there, and how it had been revealed to the apostles that she had been taken to heaven, body and soul. And later in the 6th century, belief in the Assumption was defended by St. Gregory of Tours, as uh, well as many other saints, and no saint or father of the church thereafter disputed the doctrine. No one has disputed that. And so we learn two things from this uh, letter from the 400s, from the patriarch of Jerusalem to the empress. First, and I think probably the most compelling, is that there were no relics preserved among the faithful of Mary's body. This is highly unusual. The bodies of the saints from the earliest days of the church were looked after, guarded, venerated, especially those of the martyrs. Christians would collect the martyrs' bodies from the amphitheaters where they had been torn in pieces by the wild animals or slaughtered by gladiators, and they would celebrate the Eucharist over the tombs of the apostles and the saints. And the fact that the mother of Jesus Christ himself, who gave her flesh to God so that he could redeem all flesh, that her earthly flesh and bones weren't preserved by the church, by St. John, the apostle who was given the task of looking after Mary by Jesus from the cross, why would that have been the case? The second thing we learn from this letter is the explanation to the first thing. From centuries of oral tradition, the story was told of the apostles being at the funeral of Mary, all except Thomas, who requested to see her body upon his arrival. When her tomb was opened and her body wasn't there, the apostles learned from the Holy Spirit that Christ had taken both her soul and body to be with him in heaven. And we learned that this story was at least fairly well known because Patriarch Juvenalius was surprised that Empress Pulcheria didn't know it. So despite the lack of a ton of positive and direct historical evidence of Mary's bodily assumption into heaven, we do have a shocking negative evidence in her missing relics. And we have the eventual written recording of an oral tradition with the entirety of the saints who do comment on it. And remember, saints are those who are filled to overflowing with the spirit of truth, all affirming this story, this tradition to be true. But it's good that we should still want more evidence, I think, for this belief that the church holds. And it would be silly in the extreme if the church had preserved this belief and even celebrated it liturgically like we're doing now if this story were just completely arbitrary, if it didn't actually accord with everything else we believe about the life of God, about his saving action in the world, and about what the scriptures that he inspired to teach us, teach us. So there's a term that theologians use called the analogy or the proportion of faith. It comes from Romans chapter 12, verse 6, where St. Paul says that any true prophesying will be done according to the proportion of faith. That doesn't mean that however much faith you have, that's the amount of prophesying you do. It's not that kind of proportion. It means that uh, true prophecy must fit, must be in the correct proportions to the rest of what has been revealed, to what our faith teaches us. And that's why uh, St. Paul says, um, you know, it, it, you, you can't prophesy something that doesn't fit with the whole of everything else. You can't prophesy something that contradicts it, definitely. That's why he tells the Galatians that even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we already have preached to you, he is to be accursed. 
So take uh, St. Paul takes this rule very seriously. Revelation, prophecy must fit with the whole. And so does this story about Mary fit with our faith. Of course it does. Not only does it not contradict anything from scriptures and from the apostolic tradition, it actually fits it perfectly, and we could even argue fulfills it. So how does it do this? During the lifetime of Empress Pulcheria, a council was called of the whole church, what became called the Third Ecumenical Council at Ephesus, to defend, in essence, the use of the title Theotokos, meaning birth giver of God, for the Virgin Mary, against those who rejected it, favoring instead Christotokos, meaning birth giver of Christ. The church did end up affirming this. She affirmed the title birth giver or mother of God precisely because that's who was in Mary's womb, God. Those rejecting the title didn't believe God had become 100% human in the womb of Mary, instead thinking that Christ as a man, Christ was a man in whom God dwelt as a separate and distinct person. We Orthodox, of course, believe that the man Jesus and the Logos of God are not separate persons with separate natures joined up in one body. We believe that Jesus is the divine Logos, the Son of God according to his divinity, now made the Son of Mary according to his humanity. One and the same person. Jesus the man, the divine Logos and Son of God, one person. That makes Mary, the pregnant virgin, the container of God himself. Sometimes in the church we say her womb was more spacious than the heavens, because not even the heavens can contain God, and yet there was God contained in her womb. What other container in the Bible can you think of that held God's presence? The Ark of the Covenant, of course. The Ark, as it turns out, was a type, a typos of Mary. We don't have time to go into all the ways that Scripture tells us this, especially the masterful way that St. Luke communicates this in his account of Mary visiting her cousin Elizabeth. But suffice it to say, it's there, it's clear. In the Scriptures, Mary is likened to the Ark, or rather the Ark turns out to have been a type of Mary. Well, so what? What does that have to do with the assumption? Well, remember how I said that this event isn't found in the Bible? It's not entirely true. It is actually, uh, it's not recounted as a history, like it would be in, in, say, the Acts of the Apostles. And it's not written about in the epistles of Peter and Paul. But in that great mystical vision of St. John, the disciple who took care of Mary after Jesus' ascension, we do read this. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple, and there were flashes of lightning, voices, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Was John seeing that old ark that was carried around by the Hebrews in the desert and later put into the temple and eventually lost during the Babylonian exile? Here's what he writes in the next verse. And a great portent appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was with child. And this woman brought forth a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Clearly, this woman is Mary, the only woman ever to give birth to a male child who is to rule all the nations. And here she's linked very clearly with the ark in the temple just mentioned and described in glorious apparel, indicating her, well, glory. The honor paid 
to the one creature in all of creation chosen to be the vessel of God from whom he would take flesh, who raised him and parented him and treasured all those wonderful things in her heart, all those shining moments from her experience as, her, as his mother, his birth, the prophecies pronounced over him at his dedication in the temple, the finding of him teaching in that temple when he was 12, and who could even prompt him by her holy intercession to commence his first public miracle. This honor paid to her is eminently fitting to the mother of our king, the queen mother, as it happens, of the whole universe. If Jesus is the king, then she is the queen mother. That's a concept firmly established among Jewish kings. You can see how that worked in the Old Testament. So Jesus, the ultimate and final Jewish king, and his queen mother, queen of the heavens, we say, thus the cosmic clothing that John sees on her in his vision. And in Psalm 132, we read with new eyes the meaning of verse 8, Arise, O Lord, into thy resting place, thou and the ark of thy strength. Arise, literally, in your glorious ascension, Lord Jesus, to your heavenly temple and rest, sitting at the right hand of the Father, and take your ark, your mother, there with you. I think only stubborn recalcitrance could prevent the conclusion and the happy affirmation that it is fitting for Mary to have been preserved from bodily corruption and taken up to be honored at the side of her son, she whose body was guarded through perpetual virginity, to have welcomed first and only that sacred incubating chamber the only begotten Son of God. And that's wonderful for Mary. We should celebrate that for her. But what about us? What does all this have to do with us? What does all this biblical imagery, this fantastic tradition, have anything to do with us? Well, it does have something to do with us. You bet it does, and here's why. Because the Dormition and the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary are just other words for her death and resurrection. I told you this was ultimately going to be an Easter sermon. We believe Mary was chosen to be the mother of God, not because she was just lucky, but because she was the most like him, being full of grace, as Gabriel said. And she, as the creature most like her creator and savior, by measures unfathomable, fittingly conformed to him, even in following him as the first fruits of the resurrection. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, well, Paul really drives home the point with intensity and ferociousness, I think, or what he does. Uh, just read that chapter. It is, he makes this point so that no one could be lost on it. That Jesus, in his resurrection, shows us that resurrection is in store for us too, and that that's really the point, the whole point of the gospel, of the good news, that God will preserve and radically renew what's good in his creation, including our bodies, through a kind of beautiful continuity through to the new creation. So in Jesus' resurrection, we see the first fruits of this, the foretaste. And Mary, being so conformed to her son, is like the first fruits of the rest of us. Let me put it this way. Jesus shows that our human nature is now capable of this new, indescribable resurrection life, right? He proves it. He has our nature, and he rises from the dead. He shows us this new resurrection life, and it's glorious. But he's also God. So in order to demonstrate to us, 
to our great comfort, I think, that also mere creatures who aren't themselves God incarnate can and will participate in that same resurrection life. So he raises up his mother, Mary. She demonstrates what St. Paul says is true. Christ, the first fruits of the resurrection, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Christ is the first fruits of all humanity, and Mary is the first fruits of those who belong to them, to him. She's the proof that it works. Jesus showed us that our humanity is now capable of being resurrected, and Mary proves that he was telling the truth, that he was showing us something we can follow in his footsteps. Again, from Psalm 132, If thy children will keep my covenant and my testimonies, I shall teach them. Their children also shall sit upon thy throne forevermore. We all, each in his own order, as St. Paul reminds us, will be raised, will take our place in the temple, will be regaled with cosmic clothing, will reign with Christ. You see that the resurrection of Mary to be at the side of Jesus is not simply in order to fittingly honor her. It is, but it's not just that. It's also to show us what our resurrection will look like. We don't honor Mary today as an exception, but as an example. Her glory certainly doesn't diminish Christ's, but then neither does it diminish the other saints or our own. Not a zero-sum game, remember? The kingdom of God is about super abundant grace. And so we rightly honor, venerate, and give our Ave to she who is full of grace, to the glory of God the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Christ is risen. Indeed, he is risen. Talks at Advent. Homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.